having been a Christian for almost a quarter of a century now, I realise actually it's, it's quite difficult to predict the growth of Christians. Some seem to start um, meteorically and you feel very positive about them at the beginning, but then uh, um, actually they crash and burn. And others seem to begin as very shaky, unimpressive little saplings. And yet over the years they grow into strong, solid oak trees of Christians who bless many and are absolutely rock solid themselves. And um, we have been, as we've studied Romans 8 over the last few weeks, um, asking a question related to that. How is it that Christians grow? Why is it that Christians so often don't seem to grow as we wish they would, as we wish we would? The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 is describing the Christian life, what the Christian life looks like. And every week we have uh, um, tried to see, anyway, how actually a healthy understanding of what the Christian life really is like is the most important foundation on which to grow a healthy Christian life. A failure to grasp what uh, 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 the Christian life is really like so often stunts us. A failure to grasp, for instance, that we are fully forgiven stunts us. A failure to realise how we are transformed by the Spirit of God, not by some uh, list of rules, can stunt us. But actually, I suspect for many people the most significant thing that stops them growing is the experience of suffering. Paul wants us to be crystal clear in our expectations about suffering as Christians. He couldn't write about the normal Christian life and ignore it. In... uh, Verse 17 of Romans 8, we've already seen. He, uh, we only actually have the right to share in Christ's glory if we are willing to share in his sufferings. Yet it is the solid, painful, debilitating experience of suffering over years which in many Christians that I've seen anyway, turns them from vibrant, youthful young people of faith into grumpy old pew fillers. And it need not be so. The sapling can become an oak tree if we get this right. For the last couple of weeks, we have been seeing what Paul says about the Christian experience of suffering. And two weeks ago, we, we uh, uh, spent a whole sermon um, on uh, Romans 8 verse 18, seeing that Paul says, it is worth it, verse 18. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
our present experience may be difficult, may be trying. As Christians we may specifically have to embrace certain forms of suffering rather than uh, uh, run away from them. But it is worth it. The prize of resurrection life is worth enduring a hundred marathons of pain and trial. So great is what is the glory that God has in store for us. Last week, then Emily's already said, um, Paul goes on to point out that nevertheless, despite this confident assertion that our present suffering is not worth comparing to the future glory, nevertheless, we must be soberly realistic about the reality of present suffering. Creation groans, we groan, the Spirit of God himself groans. But that frustrated groaning is not the depressed groaning of despair, uh, it is the eager groaning of hungry people who have, <coughs> who have seen a feast and can't wait to be at the table, of injured people who have seen the hospital and the surgeon waiting at the door and know they've just got to limp a few more paces until they get there and there is no more pain, of homeless people who've seen the mansion at the end of the road and know they've just got to keep walking. There is an eager expectation for all Christians we endure trials, says Paul, eagerly because we've begun to taste what one day we will feast on. But Paul's got more to say about uh, suffering. And actually something quite surprising to say to us this week. Suffering is not just a dark tunnel of frustration and groaning that we must get through to get to the light at the end of the tunnel. In God's hands, it is precisely those negative experiences that we go through that he turns into experiences for our good. Verse 28, In all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In those things, during those experiences, God is able to turn them to good. And this morning we're going to prove that um, uh, that verse to get a, a fuller and deeper understanding of the uh, uh, how to respond then to our experiences of trials. How actually trials can become our friends in the Christian life. Paul's um, led us towards this verse 28 by talking in rather Rumsfeltian terms of knowns and unknowns. We know, he says, that the whole creation is groaning, verse 22. We don't know, verse 26, what to pray for because this world is a, a confusing place. But here he, sa he says, here is something we know. We know that God works in all these things for good for those who love him. Let's probe then what it is that Paul is exactly saying. Who is this promise 
for. Well, it is very clear, isn't it? It is for those who love him, those who love God. Romans 8.28 is only a promise for Christians. doesn't mean that God doesn't do good in the lives of people who are not Christians. Jesus pointed that out in Matthew chapter 5. God causes his son to rise on the evil and good, said Jesus. He sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God allows all sorts of good things to happen to people who have rejected him. Peter insists in 2 Peter 3 verse 9 that God is enormously patient with people who at present reject him, waiting for them to repent, not wanting any to perish. There is a goodness and patience and generosity about God which extends far beyond his interaction with Christians only, but God is not guaranteeing the world at large that everything that comes in their life will be for their good. Sometimes those who don't love God will feel his wrath, feel his anger, feel his judgement. Not so for Christians. Extraordinary statement is that actually God shapes all events in the lives of Christians for our good. Next question we need to ask then. What is this good that Paul is talking about? God's uh, uh, good purpose for us is made absolutely clear in verse 29. We are the people who God has predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. That is our good. And of course to the suspicious minds amongst us that sounds like a classic letdown, doesn't it? You know, all that positive in verse 28 and then... uh, 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 and then, uh, then the letdown. Like uh, taking children into McDonald's and prom- uh, promising them that it will be good. And of course they think of quarter pounders and McFlurries, but then we produce with them, for them carrot sticks and a fruit bag, declaring in triumph, this is for their greater good. Well, Paul's not quite that austere, I don't think. But he does want us to think soberly about what is for our good what the good is that God is trying to to achieve in our lives. What we immediately desire is not always what is best for us. As supersized me proved about at McDonald's, as Jamie Oliver proved in, uh, uh, in Britain's schools, we don't always have an appetite for what is ultimately best for us. And sometimes we need to have our tastes re-educated. God is not in the business of satisfying childish, foolish, self-destructive appetites. He is in the business of shaping you and me to be a person conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. That is the good that he is wanting to achieve in our lives. And that is no letdown. A diet of burgers and chips is a letdown. 
God is intent on giving us a rich, balanced diet of experiences to grow us into strong, healthy people in the likeness of his Son. And after 2,000 years, let me say, Jesus still stands out as the most attractive person who ever lived, the most, the wisest person, the most influential person, the best person. He had a happiness in his heart which was so resilient he could even face death. Hebrews says, scorning the cross for the joy that was set before him. This is a supremely attractive, solid, joyful person whom we are being conformed into, whose likeness we are being conformed into. It is no let down at all to see that God is making us like Christ. Jesus is the exact representation of God. God is making us like himself. With all his delight in beauty, all his creativeness, all his, his solid pose, all his happiness... It is no letdown to be told that the good that God is working towards in our lives is for us to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Next question. Does that then mean, does Romans 8.28 then mean that we don't experience any evil at all? This verse could be read in, in that way, couldn't it? If God is working in all things for our good, then perhaps our felt experience of evil is really illusory. But the Bible, you see, is careful not to say that, that um, uh, either that we will avoid or evil, or that our, our, our feeling of things being bad is actually an illusion because God's really doing good things and we ought to feel it as good. Creation groans, we groan, God groans, says Paul. Those are authentic experiences in this world. It would be ridiculous to think that in the very next verse he was trying to say, but actually all that groaning is inappropriate if only you understood. Now the Bible is quite careful to um, say evil is real, evil is powerful, evil is painful, evil is confusing. Evil comes actually from a malevolent mind, the mind of Satan himself, directing his malevolence against us and it hurts but it is never outside of God's overall control. God in his wisdom doesn't remove the, the evilness of evil, rather he restrains it, he limits it, and then he actually uses it for his bigger, grander, good purpose in our lives. Let me give you a couple of examples from uh, Scripture to try and help you to see what Paul is saying. Way back in the book of Genesis, Joseph 
is hated by his brothers. He is nearly murdered by them. He is sold into slavery in Egypt. As if that wasn't bad enough, when he's in Egypt he gets put into prison and he languishes there for years. And those things, let's be clear, are evil. Those things are unjust. Those things hurt Joseph. They are bad. They are part of what it means to groan in this creation. Finally in the story we learn that God reverses Joseph's fortunes and then in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 we get an insight into Joseph's mature assessment on his life. We won't expect Joseph to say something like um, evil overpowered me for a while but uh, finally God got his act together and came through and sorted it all out. But he doesn't say that. He says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. God intended it. Those very events, those evil events, evil though they were, and intended by evil, by the uh, brothers, you intended to harm me, were actually intended by God to be used in his good plan for Joseph and actually the whole nation of Israel. Evil was never in charge at any point in Joseph's life. It was real, it was painful, it was intended malevolently by some. But God had woven even those evil events into something good. God, says Joseph, intended it, intended those events for good. And then there's the story of Jesus himself. The Bible's absolutely clear that Jesus' death on the cross was an, was an evil act perpetrated by wicked men for malevolent purposes. But it's equally clear that this was the central piece of God's wonderful, extraordinary, good plan to forgive us and save us through Christ's death. It was the best thing that ever happened in history. It was the most evil thing that ever happened in history. In Acts chapter 4, the disciples uh, are praying to God about those very events and they say, Indeed, Herod, Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. It was never out of God's control. The evil was real, but God had shaped it into the most extraordinary good. That is how God works. That is how 
he works in your life if you are a Christian. Do not expect then ever this side of eternity to be fully released from the groaning of evil. But do not think that you will ever meet in the whole of your life this side of eternity any event which God has not shaped and moulded and restrained in order that it can serve good in your life. God takes the the nasty, jarring chords of life and he actually shapes them into a beautiful beautiful symphony. God is a supernatural artist who takes the most disgusting colours imaginable from his palette and when he puts them on the canvas it becomes the most amazing masterpiece imaginable. That is the miracle that he does. That is what Paul is talking about. God works for our good in all things. We experience evil, all right, certainly. But it is never evil that has got out of control. It is always evil that God intends for our good. So how do we know? How do we know that? How can Paul say with uh, such confidence in verse 20, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Let me first be um, uh, very clear. We often... uh, Uh, won't see that at all in the short term. Joseph didn't lie in his pit that his brothers had thrown him into or languish in his Egyptian jail thinking happy thoughts of how beautifully God was working out his plans. Even Jesus actually, who knew exactly what God was doing as he died on the cross, found himself prompted to cry out, my God, my God, why? In the midst of those experiences, very often there is confusion. But underneath that, beyond that, Scripture assures us that we can know that God is working for us for good in our lives. The Bible asserts it uh, for a start and God never lies, that ought to be enough. But then there are numerous examples in Scripture too. I've just mentioned a, uh, a couple. You could think of Job as a third example that we haven't got time to look at. We can, gra- we can gain perspective by looking actually at the stories of real people in Scripture. And actually, as we go on in our Christian lives, we will learn to see Not everything, but again and again, this recurring pattern that God works out his good purposes through difficulties. 
told the story before of a, of a woman that, that I know who a number of years ago, whose, whose husband walked out on her. And, and she, was, she was absolutely devastated. But I saw over the years that followed that woman grow in ways that you couldn't have imagined. I saw her grow in, in her prayer life and in her relationship with God. I saw her um, actually um, uh, embark um, on full-time Christian ministry for a while. And I remember speaking to her once a few years after her husband had walked out and after she'd had the, the real strains and difficulties of raising three kids without dad. She said to me, she said, on a good day, not always, but on a good day, I can be glad it happened. Because God has done so much for me in my life through that experience. Apostle Paul speaks uh, in 2 Corinthians of his um, uh, real troubles that he had had in his ministry so that he despaired of his life. But actually, he in that, in the middle of that, discovered the comfort of God. His relationship with God was infinitely deepened. And more than that, he says, he had the privilege now of, of being someone who could comfort others with the comfort that God had given him. He never quite said that facing death by mauling with lions was good. But God had produced good through it. And I have to say, sometimes we will have to have an eternal perspective when we are, are thinking of that. Because there is no promise that all the strands will come together and it will start to become clear the good that God was doing within our life. The uh, young missionary Jim Elliot in 1956 went to uh, uh, a, a, a tribe of South American Indians called the Alka at that, that, that point. He was butchered by them. Was his death just a, a tragic victory of evil over good? Well, in the following years, actually, God's church was so enlivened by that experience that uh, volunteers to missionary agents, uh, agencies tripled over the years. Actually, those, that, that very tribe has been reached with the gospel, actually by Jim Elliot's widow amongst other peoples. And that tribe now has become a missionary tribe, sending missionaries out to other places and other parts of the world to reach more people for Christ. And do you think Jim Elliot now is thinking what a terrible waste of his life that was when he died so young. Do you think that the risen Jim Elliot, resurrected, living for eternal life, 
is going to regret the life he spent. When he's got hundreds, perhaps thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people coming to him and saying, thank you, you made a massive difference in my life. You did me enormous good. I don't think so. I think Jim Elliot is going to be there saying, thank you God that you used me in that way. I can't think of a better way for you to have treated me in my life. I know that our expectations need to be revised if actually your taste is just for the next pleasure or just for a little bit more money or just for a little bit more respect now or for just a slightly easier life now. I know that that Romans 8.28 won't feel like good news as I explain it. But that's because we don't know what's good for us. That's because we are silly children going in and ordering our, 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 our McFlurries and our quarter pounders. And there are so many children, silly children amongst us, who actually have no idea of the real good that God wants to do in our lives. Just this week, um, Kenneth Lay, the former chairman of uh, Enron, was convicted of fraud. And uh, whilst he stood on the steps of the court uh, uh, afterwards, he hasn't been imprisoned yet, he quoted Romans 8.28, this very verse, saying this was his assurance that his conviction would be overthrown. Now, if Ken Lay's not a Christian, and I don't know uh, the answer to that, but if he's not a Christian, first of all, he has no right to quote that verse at all. It is not for him. But you see, if he is a Christian, the overwhelming evidence, says, as far as uh, I can see and as far as anyone else can see, is that he has seriously misunderstood the, God, the good that God wants to do, here, do for him. He is a convicted fraudster with overwhelming evidence against him. The best evidence is actually what God wants, the good God wants to do through this is to humble him if he's a Christian. God wants to make him truly penitent if he is a Christian. God wants him to see the harm that he's done to others if he's Christian. Uh, if he's a Christian. God wants to, to create a lowly, gentle, humble Christ-like Kenneth Lay. That is the good that God is working for in his life. And if, if Ken Lay is a Christian, then actually the promise of this verse, verse is God is going to keep hammering away with his chisel until he sculpts something more Christ-like in him. And he will do the same for you and I. If we will not listen when God whispers, he will shout. But you see, if we really do want to be Christ-like, 
if we do not really do want what God wants for us in our life, then we need fear the future not at all. Because we have a promise. That if we belong to God, then everything, but everything, will be shaped for our good. The great Puritan preacher, Richard Sibbs, once wrote, Whatever is good for God's children, they shall have it. For all is theirs to further them to heaven. If crosses be good, they shall have them. If disgrace be good, they shall have it. For all is theirs to further their main good. Oh yes, and let's not be too negative with Richard Sibbs. If, if food be ours, we, uh, we'll, we'll further our main good, we shall have it. If laughter and friends and lengthen life, that too. If those things will make us praise God more fulsomely, he will give it. I wonder what, what experiences life is throwing at you at the moment. That's the, that's the bottom line, isn't it? What experience is life throwing at you? He may be causing you to prosper. He may be giving you real happiness. He may be setting before you a path that looks wonderful. And I delight for you in that. What he wants you to do is to use those wonderful experiences to share with others, to praise God more fully, to delight in him. And if we will not, then he will have to withdraw them. Because he wants our main good. And maybe uh, difficulty is facing you. Because difficulty faces us all. Maybe it is difficult relationships. Maybe it is some besetting sin or failure. Maybe it is some uncertainty about job, your job. Maybe it is your failing body and your failing health and the prospect of death because that will come. What does God want of you now? He doesn't want us to grumble. He doesn't want us to fear it. He wants us to ask, what does God want to do in my life through this? This difficult, debilitating relationship. Surely he wants to teach me patience. This uncertainty about my future. Surely he wants me to, to teach me to trust him. This deep sorrow I have in my heart. Surely he wants me to seek his comfort. This this reality of a fading body, surely he wants me to realise that I was always dust. And he will give me exactly the years that he has chosen. This prospect of death that stands before me, surely he wants me to realise our only hope ever was resurrection life. We long, says Paul, to be clothed with immortality. He brings all things into your life, every single one, for your main good. So you need not fear.
every one of us can leave this place with utter confidence not that there will be no evil in our life but that no evil will stop God doing his work and that work is infinitely beautiful all is ours for furthering our main 